focus on headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have Handan and Jung Sebom. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. We're going to start things off uh, here in Korea. Uh, the National Assembly holding a very rare weekend plenary session uh, to push for the dismissal of Interior Minister Lee Sang-min. Uh, this again for the inadequate response to the Itaewon crowd crush, which is now over a month ago. We've been finding out, of course, the DP had continuously uh, pushed for this motion. It's been uh, certainly a lot of opposition from the ruling PPP. Nevertheless, uh, Tanya, you're going to start us off. What's the latest on this? Right. The main opposition Democratic Party unilaterally passed a motion for the dismissal of Interior and Safety Minister Lee Sang-min after holding a one-point plenary session on Sunday. As you know, the DP holds the majority of the seats at the National Assembly, 169 seats in the 299-member Assembly to be exact, and 182 of the 183 lawmakers who cast ballots voted in favor of the motion with one vote declared invalid. As widely expected, members of the ruling People Power Party boycotted the vote and walked out of the chamber en masse before voting began. People Power Party's Kwon Eun-hee was the only member who remained seated to cast her ballot along with the opposition party members. Tensions between the two rival parties were at its peak even before the session schedule was fixed, with the ruling PPP strongly opposing the opening of the one-point plenary session. A weekend session was put to a vote against the PPP's will, and uh, with the Democratic Party holding the majority of the seats, the session was approved. The motion, uh, introduced by the main opposition Democratic Party, was reported to the National Assembly last Thursday. A vote must take place within 72 hours after a motion is reported at a plenary session or uh, it's automatically scrapped according to the National Assembly law. Now, for our listeners out there, if you guys are wondering if this is the uh, first time that the PPP has uh, boycotted the vote, it's not. Actually, it has been uh, very frequent. And this, again, has to do with the fact that the Democratic Party has the majority in the National Assembly. So knowing that no matter what they do, uh, it is going to get passed by the DP lawmakers. Uh, what they do is as a, a sign, sort of a symbolis- uh, symbolistic uh, move here. Uh, they do, of course, uh, continue to boycott this. But uh, in response to this, the government and the ruling party holding a separate meeting to discuss countermeasures against the dismissal motion on the same day here. Uh, from what I understand, Minister Lee Sang-min was also present in this meeting. That's right. While President Yoon is widely expected to reject the motion, Minister Lee Sang-min reportedly attended the government and the ruling party's meeting on the dismissal motion. According to Yonhap News Agency citing ruling, ruling party lawmakers, Lee took part as the minister in charge of the Itaewon tragedy recovery effort and he did not mention about the dismissal motion. Instead, he briefed plans to support bereaved families of the tragedy. It's largely interpreted that Lee's participation in the meeting hints at President Yoon's rejection of the motion. Uh, But the presidential office during a regular briefing today reiterated its stance that Lee's dismissal should be considered after an investigation into the Itaewon crowd crush is completed, stressing that it's a matter of determining legal responsibilities, not about accepting or rejecting the motion. 
motion. The ruling party has said all attention is focused not on the dismissal motion, but rather on next year's budget and slammed the DP for holding people's budget hostage to salvage its party chief, Lee Jae-myung. The PPP has long argued that DP's push to sack Minister Lee is part of its tragedy uh, strategy to disperse media attention that have been highly concentrated on ongoing investigations of the Songnam land development project scandal allegedly involving DP chief Lee Jae-myung. Pressure has been mounting on Minister Lee Sang-min to step down as the head of the Interior Ministry in charge of supervising the police and the fire agencies to take responsibility for the bungled response to the horrific crowd crush that killed 158 people on Halloween weekend. The bereaved families on Saturday officially launched a council demanding the truth about the incident and urging Minister Lee to resign. That's right. Of course, we talked about the uh, the parliamentary investigative committee that was uh, formed. And because this is a bipartisan committee, uh, the consensus is that uh, instead of the sides uh, trying to get to the, the bottom of everything and try to find the answer, uh, there was going to be a lot of uh, political motives. And so there's been a lot of people that have not been uh, a big fan of this particular committee here. Uh, despite this, the PPP continues to say that, you know, there might be some answers that will come out of this investigation and only then will they start looking into the dismissal of uh, Minister uh, Lee Sang-min. But again, I mean, for the longest time, it was uh, widely uh, speculated that uh, President Yoon was not going to, of course, accept the motion here. Uh, the big question now remains whether or not uh, President Yoon continuously backing uh, Minister E will affect his uh, approval rating, which, by the way, has been going up in the recent week uh, because of his uh, role in or his administration's role uh, in dealing with the uh, tr- striking truckers there. Uh, but uh, amid the growing tensions on the National Assembly, uh, the ruling and the main opposition, part, part, uh, opposition parties Still having another clash, uh, clash over corporate tax. Uh, Sebom, you're going to tell us more about this. Sure. Although the deadline for negotiating the 2023 budget bill has extended to the 15th, it's expected to be still difficult to reach an agreement between the two parties over corporate tax, which currently stands at 25%. The ruling People Power Party is pushing to lower the minimum corporate tax rate to 22% to garner more investment in South Korea, especially considering neighboring countries' relatively lower corporate tax rates. For instance, Taiwan has a corporate tax rate of 20% so that the ruling PPP claims that new companies would come to Korea and we may lose investment in semiconductor and other key industries to other countries with the current tax rate in place. On the other hand, the main opposition Democratic Party is arguing that it's necessary to keep the current uh, rate, claiming the PPP's proposal is aimed at only benefiting big companies and conglomerates. As an effort to find a breakthrough, National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo proposed a compromise of lowering the rate to 22%, but postponing its implementation by two years. The Democratic Party, however, warned it could revise and pass the national budget plan unilaterally if the ruling PPP continues to stall for time. 
The DP is also planning to include a tax cut policy for the working class in its national budget plan. About this, the ruling PPP is saying that it is an act of violating the administration's right to establish national budgets. If the two parties fail to reach an agreement, we may see an unprecedented situation in which the opposition party passes a budget bill on its own. If you look at OECD statistics, Korea had the sixth highest corporate tax rate compared to its GDP as of the year 2019, and its corporate to GDP ratio recorded 4.3%, one point four times higher than the OECD average. Now, from my recognition, um, I believe previously uh, it was 22% until the uh, former Moon Jae-in administration raised it to uh, 25%. And uh, right now, the current ruling uh, People Power Party is, of course, trying to uh, reverse that and bring it back to where it was uh, before. So, again, I mean, there's uh, two sides of everything. And we kind of see this, like, in the United States as well, uh, where uh, the conservative Republican Party will kind of more push towards the conglomerates, uh, whereas the, the Democrats will kind of push for more the, the working people here. And we're kind of seeing the same thing here, but they do have uh, equally, uh, I guess, right arguments uh, going forward here. But I have never seen so much clash uh, within the uh, two parties, especially when it comes to uh, budget bills. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, expected to slow the pace of rate hikes from next year. But uh, Europe is projected to continue with this aggressive monetary tightening throughout 2023. This is according to various reports that have been coming in. Don, uh, give us the details of this. Right. The U.S. Fed is widely expected to deliver another rate hike when board members meet on Tuesday, raising rates by 50 basis points uh, after four consecutive giant steps. And the European Central Bank is also forecast to take either a big step or a giant step to raise rates by 50 to 75 basis points. Uh, the ECB has also delivered two consecutive giant steps in recent months. And the Bank of England is also likely to follow suit and raise rates by 0.5 percentage point this month. So we can see that there is a, con a consistent trend among central banks in Europe and the U.S. Uh, to uh, continue with, its, uh, with their steep rate hikes. But according to the Wall Street Journal, interest rate paths for the U.S. and Europe will likely diverge next year as the U.S. U.S. Fed will begin to slow the pace of rate hikes, while Europe will press ahead with steep hikes. It projects the U.S. will raise rates by just around 0.6 percent, while the ECB and the Bank of England will push up the rates by 1.25 to 1.5. 5% by 1.5% next year. The report explains that the gap will result from different inflation levels and recovery speed. The U.S. inflation dropped by 1.5 percentage points since June, posting 7.7% in October, while Eurozone inflation remained high in November, dropping merely by 0.6 percentage point from October uh, when the figure hit 10.6%, the highest inflation level on record. JP Morgan projects the Eurozone inflation to hover around 6.5%, while the U.S. will see a drop uh, to the 4% range next year. 
in this as the uh, European economy shows relatively strong recovery despite the looming energy crisis due to the prolonged war in Ukraine on top of stable job figures. So the Wall Street Journal explains that this means Europe has more room, more leeway for further aggressive monetary tightening. And that shift, uh, it analyzes, is likely to uh, reverse some of the key market dynamics of this year, uh, most significantly, the super strong dollar. Yeah, I'm not surprised that uh, we're seeing this at this time because uh, the U.S. Fed has been very aggressive with their monetary tightening from the get-go, whereas uh, if you look at some of the numbers, uh, the European central banks, uh, they weren't as aggressive, not to mention, as Tan said, uh, if you look at the inflation figures, Europe is still seeing very, very high inflation figures, whereas uh, here in South Korea, we've been seeing some uh, declines on that figure. The U.S. also although uh, it is slight 1.5 percentage points, uh, still a downward trend. So you're going to see, of course, a uh, less aggressive uh, tightening from the United States, whereas Europe is going to continue to push this up. But we're going to take a now look at the trend of South Korea's base rate hikes. Um, according to statistics, uh, it's been found that compared to some of the other developed countries, uh, South Korea's rate hikes were amongst the smallest, although it uh, certainly doesn't feel that way right now. Uh, Sebum, tell us more in detail. Okay. As Tan just reported, major countries have increased their base rates multiple times following the suit of the United States. However, now we are seeing different patterns in each country depending on their economic situation and inflation. According to the Bank of Korea's data on developed countries' rate hikes between September 1st and November 23rd, the U.S. Federal Reserve continued its giant steps two times in a row, raising its base rate to 3.75% to 4%. Following the suit, the European Central Bank also took giant steps in September and October so that their policy rate jumped 150 basis points from 0.5% to 2%. And if you look at other countries, Canada, Israel, and New Zealand have also raised their base rate by 125 basis point, Australia and Sweden by 100 BP, and Norway and the Switzerland by 75 basis point. Meanwhile, the Bank of Korea took a single big step in October, raising its base rate by 50 basis point from 2.5% to 3%. If we consider the BOK's baby step on November 24th, right after the survey period, South Korea's policy rate has increased by 75 basis points, relatively small compared to other developed countries. The BOK analyzed that since South Korea began to raise its policy rate earlier than other major countries due to rapid increase in housing prices, the increase in its interest rate turned out to be smaller during the survey period. Meanwhile, the Bank of Japan has frozen its short-term policy rate and 10-year national bond rate in September and October, and it is expected to maintain its short- and long-term policy rates at the current level or slightly lower them. The Czech Republic also decided to keep its policy rate currently standing at 7%. The Bank of Korea analyzed that some countries started to slow down the pace of interest rate hikes following their previous big or giant steps, considering rate hikes' impacts on their macroeconomy.
Although most of major countries will continue to raise their policy rates, we may see different patterns going forward depending on each country's economic situation and inflation. Yeah, I feel like, um, and I could be wrong, uh, the reason why South Korea, uh, comparative to some of the other countries, might have a lower uh, interest rate hike is because um, something... Crazy happened uh, during the pandemic where, again, with the near zero uh, interest rates, uh, people were buying houses left and right, right? And so now with the rising uh, the interest rates, they're left with massive mortgage loans right now. And so I think uh, the consensus with the, the South Korean, uh, the, the central bank here was saying that, look, if we raise our interest rates too much, we're going to get slammed by already high uh, household debt at this time. And so that was one of the considerations they were putting in before they were raising the rates. But the thing is, I, I, don't, I don't know if you guys looked at some of the uh, the loans and their interest rates that have been coming out. I was looking into uh, car loans recently, thinking about whether or not I want to buy a new car. Uh, at, at the beginning of the year, uh, to borrow over three, uh, it was a span of five years, the interest rate was something like 4.6%. Uh, now it's at 7.6% interest rate. So that's a jump of 3%, which is super high, which is why a lot of people are not buying, you know, taking out, unless you got cash, they're not buying cars right now. Uh, Patrick Pierzer, who's over in Germany, uh, says that uh, inflation in the EU is at 10% and more in the EU. We can watch inflation each Saturday while shopping. Prices and uh, prices are rising and rising and rising. So he's basically saying the consumer prices are rising on a weekly basis. And that's what I've heard. And that's the reason why there's been so much protest uh, that are happening in some of the EU countries where they're basically saying with the, with the rising pr consumer prices, they're just not afford to, able to afford any of the goods. And the only thing that's remained stagnant is uh, their salary. And so all the workers, of course, striking because of this. Guys, uh, let's move on to uh, some other issues here. Uh, social, the strict social distancing and the COVID-19 restrictions uh, that were lifted in April this year. Uh, this certainly raised hopes for many small business owners and, of course, one of the hardest hit groups by the pandemic. But a recent survey showed that 7 in 10 saw less profit than this year. Uh, what, what's behind this? Right. The survey conducted by the Federation of Korean Industries on some 500 small business owners in the dining and retail sectors showed that nearly 70 percent of respondents saw reduced profit this year compared to last year. Sales dropped by over 12.5 percent and net profit by 12.4 percent on average from last year. This is largely attributed to the soaring prices of just about everything. Business owners cited prices of raw materials and ingredients, as well as expensive labor costs and monthly rent as the biggest factors that drove down their profit this year despite eased quarantine restrictions. Business owners' average loan reached nearly 100 million won, with over 15% of them saying they have an outstanding debt of over 150 million won. And things aren't looking so bright next year, with more than half of the respondents projecting sales will drop further down from this year in 2023. 40% of them said they're considering shutting down their business within three years as uh, economic uncertainties will likely continue uh, when they're still struggling to pay off debt from reduced profit. 
23% of them selected rising monthly rent and various tax burdens as the biggest business risk factors, while 21% cited snowballing debt. 19% of them said rising prices of imported materials as their biggest financial burden. Federation of Korean Industries called for thorough support measures for small business owners and the self-employed as they take up 25% of the Korean economy, which is the highest level among OECD member nations. It warned that protracted difficulties among small business owners could have a significant impact on the livelihoods of Korea's entire working class. Yeah, I've uh, seen a report recently that a lot of the restaurants also so having a hard time finding workers. Uh, and in fact, there's times they have to close down and they're offering uh, each worker something like 20,000 won per hour, uh, which I think is a relatively high wage for, uh, because prior it used to be uh, it used to be like minimum wage back in the days. And they're saying that even with 20,000 won per hour wage that they're offering, no one's taking up these jobs. And so they have no workers and they're shutting down because they just don't have workers. Things are not looking bright right now, despite the fact that it has been uh, three years almost into the pandemic. Uh, and I think uh, the brunt of the pandemic has uh, in the past right now. But still, uh, just when we thought that COVID-19 was done and over with, uh, we did see a surge in cases again. Uh, the government with this uh, decided to expand the target demographic of the bivalent vaccines to uh, from those age 18 to and above to now age 12 and above. So kids who are 12 and above uh, can get these shots. Uh, so everyone update us on the new COVID-19 cases and also tell us more about the, uh, the vaccination program. All right. Let's first look at the new confirmed cases. The number of new infection cases recorded approximately 25,000 today, raising the cumulative total to over 27.75 million. If we only look at Monday figures, it is the highest in 13 weeks since September 12th. As teenagers are three to five times more susceptible to Omicron variants and 1.8 times more vulnerable to reinfection, the South Korean government recently decided to offer bivalent vaccines to those aged between 12 and 17, lowering the target demographic from those aged 18 and above. With this decision, those aged between 12 and 17 are now eligible for Pfizer's bivalent COVID-19 vaccine targeting the Omicron subvariants BA1, BA4, and BA5 from today. Those who have had allergic reactions to mRNA shots can get recombinant vaccines. So if you make vaccine reservations, you can get inoculated from a week later. And same-day vaccinations using leftover doses will be also available. It is found that approximately two-thirds of the population aged between 12 and 17 have completed their primary vaccination, but only 11.5% of the age group have received a booster shot. So considering the effectiveness of bivalent vaccine against Omicron, as well as its safety demonstrated in the U.S. vaccination program targeting teenagers, uh, the government now strongly recommends uh, teenagers to get vaccination. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'm not certainly not an expert in the vaccines, but uh, I was just talking to 
a couple of parents who have like teenage kids and uh, these kids either have not been vaccinated or just received the first shot. A uh, number of them uh, have been reinfected. So I don't know what it is. I mean, you know, I talked to medical experts in the past. They said, you know, booster shot and you get an infection. That itself is probably uh, the best kind of protection from COVID-19. Uh, whereas it does seem like if we only get one shot or no shots, uh, there is a high risk of getting reinfection. And we're certainly uh, seeing more of this right now. But uh, 25,000 cases roughly around that today. That's only... That figure, because it is a Monday figure, uh, we'll right. probably see a much higher figure tomorrow and Wednesday as well. Other news, a special representative for Korea Peninsula Peace and Security Affairs, Kim Gunn, leaving for Indonesia on Sunday. This is for uh, to hold talks with North Korean nuclear issues with his U.S. and Japanese counterparts. Tan, uh, it is Monday now. Uh, what's in his schedule? Well, Kim Gun was uh, scheduled to meet with his U.S. Uh, with U.S. Special Representative for North Korea, Sung Kim, this afternoon to discuss North Korea, uh, and so talks are expected to have taken place or are taking place as we speak. Uh, it is around 4.30 p.m. in Jakarta, uh, but we're still waiting for the details to be unveiled. Mm. The two sides are expected to share their assessments on regional tensions uh, attributable to North Korea's evolving missile provocations and discuss ways to respond to the country's military provocations through a trilateral and global collaboration. Uh, Kim Gun will hold talks with his uh, Japanese counterpart Takehiro Funakoshi tomorrow, uh, and a trilateral meeting is also expected to be held tomorrow as well. So uh, uh, with Sun Kim, so we'll have to keep close tabs on the outcome of a tomorrow's back-to-back meetings. Uh, it'll mark the first gathering of the three top nuclear envoys since their last meeting in Tokyo in September. Yeah, we're certainly seeing uh, the three sides uh, hold a lot of meetings in uh, uh, recent uh, months, uh, not necessarily with the officials that we just talked about, but just the three countries and whether or not this signals that there are more provocations ahead for North Korea, uh, we'll have to see. But uh, will North Korea again respond uh, to these meetings that are happening? Uh, we certainly have been seeing them uh, answer back with some provocations of their own when these meetings take place. Uh, but in other diplomatic news, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Daniel Crittenbank is scheduled to visit Seoul. Uh, he's going to be having his talks with his Korean counterparts here. Uh, Sebama, tell us what they're going to be discussing. Sure. U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs Daniel Crittenbrink is set to arrive in South Korea later today following his visit to Beijing and discuss a range of regional and bilateral issues tomorrow. His counterpart will be Deputy Foreign Minister Choi Young-sam, and the two sides are expected to discuss North Korea, including the thorough implementation of UN Security Council sanctions against Pyongyang and close cooperation between South Korea and the U.S., considering North Korea's missile launches and other provocations. The two sides could also discuss ways to take the South Korea-U.S. alliance to the next level in preparation of next year's 70th anniversary of the bilateral alliance. The Korean side is also expected to deliver its concerns again over the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, one of the biggest economic issues between the two countries, in order to protect South Korean car makers such as Hyundai and Kia Motors in the U.S. market. Daniel Crittenbrinken is scheduled to fly to Japan on Wednesday morning after completing his talks in South Korea. 
Meanwhile, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Korean Foreign Minister Park Jin and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi met online today and discussed bilateral relations and issues on the Korean Peninsula. All right, so let's move on to some other issues here. Uh, unfortunately, we are now uh, heading into the 10th month right now, but uh, the fact is uh, the war over in Ukraine uh, seems to be nowhere near done right now. Uh, this time, President Joe Biden and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky speaking on Sunday uh, to discuss Russia's continuous invasion and recent U.S. efforts to strengthen Ukraine's air uh, defenses. Tana, tell us what are some of the key takeaways in the uh, discussions there? Sure. Zelensky thanked uh, President Biden for an additional $275 million in security assistance, which the Pentagon announced Friday, as well as for the wider and unprecedented U.S. support of Ukraine's sovereignty in the face of Russian aggression. Zelensky said the unprecedented defense and financial assistance from the U.S. helped not only to succeed on the battlefield, but also to maintain the stability of the Ukrainian economy. The package announced last week includes weapons and artillery rounds, as well as equipment to help Ukraine boost its air defense. It followed a $53 million package announced late last month to support Ukraine's electrical system uh, as the country faces a barrage of attacks from Russia. Zelensky told President Biden that Russian missile terror has led to the destruction of about 50% of Ukraine's energy infrastructure while uh, thanking the U.S. for allocating aid specifically for the reconstruction of Ukraine's energy systems. The White House said that uh, President Biden reaffirmed the U.S. commitment to continue providing Ukraine with security, economic and humanitarian assistance. Zelensky also addressed his plan to convene a global peace summit. He presented a 10-point peace plan to end Russia's invasion uh, in a video speech uh, to G20 leaders in Bali, if you remember. Uh, Biden welcomed his uh, stated openness to a just peace based on fundamental principles enshrined in the United Nations Charter. Uh, The steps, as Zelensky outlined last month, include a path to nuclear safety, food security, a special tribunal for alleged Russian war crimes, and a final peace treaty with Moscow. Uh, Meanwhile, the South Korean government will send 100 tons of goods and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine this month, which include vaccines for children, medical equipment, first aid kits and generators. The government hopes that the power generators in particular will help Ukrainians in urgent need of heat and electricity during the winter season. Yeah, this uh, war right now in Ukraine is taking a weird turn right now because now it went from basically Russia continuously attacking some of the cities in Ukraine and uh, Ukraine trying to defend this. Now what we're seeing is uh, Ukraine kind of hitting all the regions that were taken by uh, Russia. This including, of course, some of the regions that were uh, annexed by uh, Russia uh, through you know referendums and things like that. So there's a lot of back and forth that's going on. But the thing that we're seeing Russia do more of these days, again, because of the cold winters, I don't know if anyone's been to Eastern Europe during this time, but it gets really, really cold there. They continuously hit these um, uh, the energy f- uh, infrastructures and uh, energy grids. And so uh, this is going to be 
devastating effect, obviously, for the citizens in Ukraine right now. But there is certainly, but at the same time, Russia is also saying, well, look, I mean, they're attacking us too. We talked about all the air bases that were attacked. Uh, Ukraine still refuses to say whether or not they were responsible for this. But it's now going to a blow for blow instead of just Ukraine kind of answering this. But how much further can they do this? And also, will Russia now respond with I guess bigger attacks towards Ukraine is the other thing right now. But uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I don't know how much further also the U.S. will continue, can continue uh, to give this assistance. Uh, let's go into finish things off with some positive note here. We have some exciting space news. Uh, NASA's Orion's capsule successfully landing on Earth after making its closest approach to the moon. Uh, it's been... Exactly 50 years since the last Apollo astronauts went to moon. Uh, this was back in 1972. Uh, Sam, you have more details on this. All right. It was truly a historic moment. NASA's unmanned Orion capsule successfully returned to Earth on 11th in local time, parachuting into the Pacific Ocean of Mexico after completing a 2.3 million kilometers flight to orbit the moon that lasted 25 days. With this, the United States completed the first phase of NASA's new Artemis moon program after 50 years have passed since the previous Apollo moon program was conducted. Orion reached its maximum distance from Earth, extending the record to 268,563 miles or 432,210 kilometers. The incoming capsule hit the atmosphere at Mach 32 or 32 times the speed of sound and injured re-entry temperatures of 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit or 2,000 760 degrees Celsius. NASA needed a successful splashdown to stay on track for the next Orion flight around the moon, currently targeted for the year 2024. Four astronauts will make the trip in the year, and that will be followed by a two-person lunar landing as early as 2025. Through this Artemis moon program, NASA aims to construct a lunar base and space station, utilize lunar resources, and ultimately learn some lessons for space exploration to Mars by developing deep space exploration technologies. Shortly after the splashdown, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said that humanity is now going back into deep space with a new generation. Maybe just in a few years, humanity will make science fiction movies a reality. Well, I mean, we're already seeing uh, what we used to be science fiction stuff uh, happen right now in real life. Uh, Patrick Pierzer chiming in a couple of issues that we talked about on the program. The escalation of the Ukraine conflict is very dangerous. We don't know when it will be a step too far. And uh, that was actually the kind of point that I was trying to make and that it went from basically Ukraine defending its territory and taking back its territory to now, as we saw attacks on Russian air bases. And, uh, and, and that's probably the, one of the reasons for why uh, they're not acknowledging the fact that they're responsible for the attacks, uh, because it could be really dangerous. Also, Patrick seems to be a space expert uh normally orion could land on land i don't understand why they made a sea landing like the times of apollo i have no idea but i would assume that it's that just they safer would land on sea right <laughs> yeah, like, like it'd just be safer right uh, just get more cushion i, I guess mm -hmm. uh, is what it is uh if if i was and i know this was an unmanned uh project but i mean if i was an astronaut i would much feel much safer landing on 
water than on land. Anything could go wrong with this. But uh, nevertheless, it is quite interesting. And the fact that despite the technology that we've had, uh, we hadn't had uh, people on the moon in so long here. But uh, again, that will happen in the near future here. Guys, uh, thank you as always for your reports today. Please stay safe and we'll see you guys again. Thank, thank you. you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.